Let's read together from the Word of God as we turn to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We're in chapter 12 and beginning to read at verse 12. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we are all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. The parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. One of the characteristics of Western societies that has often uh, been remarked upon, certainly Western societies before the most recent crisis, and that has been individualism. In Western societies in general, uh, we find that because of the different social and philosophical developments in our history. You go right back to the 18th century. Some of you interested in history will know the Age of Enlightenment, the time when human reason was exalted as the source uh, of knowledge. If you go back to those days, there's a growing focus on the individual, the importance of the individual, often at the expense uh, of wider social relationships. That isn't true in every part of the world, and often uh, those who come uh, to Western societies from 
Africa, from Asia, uh, are shocked by how little commitment there is to family and community compared to the societies that they come from. Uh, And Western societies, our own included, uh, North America perhaps even more so. The focus is on the individual and my importance and my rights and all that goes along with that. They're extremely individualistic. Social bonds uh, are much weaker. Fragmented societies. Uh, A great deal of attention uh, on what the individual wants uh, and satisfying uh, his particular desires. And of course we're in a society, aren't we, where the individual now can decide he can be whoever and whatever he wants. He can and she can self-identify as anything. And society has to make that possible. That's individualism carried almost, we might think, to its limit. And yet probably even those limits will be breached in coming years. And the result of that often is what we can see around us. Social isolation, loneliness, mental health problems. And the coming of the coronavirus has simply exacerbated all of that. The trends that were already present are simply made so much worse by the circumstances we're living in. Individualism. And standing in contrast to that kind of individualism is or should be the church of Jesus Christ. It's significant that all the descriptions uh, that we have in the Bible of God's people is a community, a people, not simply a collection of individuals pursuing their own interests and their own activities. But the people of God, the church, is always thought of in Scripture as a community, a body of interrelated people. And historically, Christians have expressed this belief in the community into which Christ brings them in terms of the communion of the saints. It's a phrase you find, for example, in our Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 26, the communion of the saints. Now, our minds maybe immediately think communion, the Lord's Supper, but it's communion in its widest sense. Fellowship, being a body, being a community of people. Now we've been undertaking a spiritual checkup, and so we come to the sixth of our studies uh, today, and we're asking the question, if we think of ourselves sitting down before the Lord, the great uh, physician, and he's checking us up, seeing how we're doing, the question today is, do you commune with the saints? Do you commune with the saints? Think of this whole uh, aspect of church life as a community, as a body of interrelated people, not individuals. You can find that out in the world very, very easily. The church, as in every aspect of its life, is called to be something profoundly different. Do you commune with the saints? I want to think first of all of the covenant community 
the covenant community. We're starting really at the beginning with the question, what is the church? We're using the expression church as if we all understood exactly what that means. Of course, there are different ideas of what the church is. To some, it's simply a building. Well, we can set that aside. Uh, In the New Testament period, uh, there were no church buildings as we understand it. The church functioned without them. It's not the building we're talking about. Something else. What's the church? Well, in the minds, of course, of many people, church really is a a sort of club or society uh, that, that they might join to pursue a particular interest or to attain certain services. You sign up and you get whatever the society offers you. You might join a tennis club or a golf club or you might join some professional association, whatever it might be. Maybe for social or for professional reasons. And in the minds of many people, the church is just one more among the range of options. And you might join it if that is what you're into. If you're interested in religious kinds of activities, you can join a church. And if you're not, then you can just ignore it. It's like another sort of social club or society. Biblical descriptions of the church, we might well expect, are completely different. The whole fundamental concept of church that we find in the scriptures is not some kind of voluntary social organization or some uh, professional society. The church in scripture is a covenant community of the people of God. The most basic description, that is it, the covenant community of the people of God. True of God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it had much more of a particularly national ethnic coloring, largely made up of Israelites. And in the New Testament, it breaks those bounds into an international community. But in Old and New Testaments, It is the covenant community of the people of God. People to whom God makes his covenant promise. And we've repeated this many, many times, but it bears constant repetition. The covenant promise of Leviticus 26 and 12, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. That, in its simplest form, is God's covenant. And the community of those who are brought into that covenant, for whom God is their God, they are his people, that is the church, the covenant community of God's people. Now, of course, there are some who falsely join themselves to the church, who don't really know the Lord, who are not within that covenant. God isn't their God. They've not trusted in the Lord for salvation. They're hypocrites. They're pretenders. They're bluffers. And within the church, of course, there are, there always have been, there always will be those who are not truly part of the church as the body of God's people. We don't define the church on the basis of those 
who falsely claim to belong. We define it as the Bible does. It's the body of those within this covenant of grace who know and love the Lord, who seek to serve him, who are his people. The people of whom it's true, as 1 John 1, 3 states, that our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And if that is true of you, if your fellowship, if your communion is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, you are part of the church in that biblical sense. It's the covenant community of the people of God. You're in a living relationship with God. Fundamental to the Bible's description of church is the idea of union. If you are truly part of the church of Jesus Christ, you are a person who is united. United in what way? Well, we're united, first of all, to Christ. That's essential. That is basic. We are united to Christ. And that's the basic way to understand salvation. A saved sinner is someone who once was dead in sins and by the power of the Holy Spirit has been made alive in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, united to the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. That's what's happened in any person who's really saved. Spiritually, you died with Christ and you're raised with Christ. You're united to him. That's a theme that clearly delighted the heart of Paul the Apostle. In Ephesians 2 and verses 5 and 6, this is how he describes believers. God made us alive with Christ. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's true now. Not just after death. We are now spiritually seated in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We're united to him. And Paul deals with it at length in Romans 6 and encourage you to read the opening verses of, of Romans 6 that deal with this union with Christ. Verse 5, for example, if we have been united like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. That's looking to our final hope as Christians. We are united to Christ. That's what a Christian is. That's the most important fact about the Christian. It's not our ethnic background. It's not our education. It's not anything of this world. It's this fundamental spiritual relationship. We're united to Christ. We've died to our old life of sin and we've been made alive to love and to serve the God who saved us. And so in this covenant community, we are united to Christ. But we are also, and this particularly brings us to think of the communion of the saints, we are also united to one another. We are united 
to one another. And this follows on from being united to Christ. It's not simply that each of us as individual Christians is united to the Savior. But because that is true, we're also united to one another. And we form a body. We form a community. We're not simply united to Christ, wonderful as that is, but we are also united to everyone else who's united to Christ. We're united to all of the Lord's redeemed people. And that's reflected in Paul's language in the passage we read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, for example, in verse 27, You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. That body language is tremendously important. If you think of our bodies, it's various limbs and organs and so forth that are all joined together in wonderful ways. We're not a pile of components any more than the church is a pile of individual Christians. Our bodies have all the parts joined together. And in the church, God's people are joined together to make a body where we're linked spiritually to every other believer. That's a remarkable thought. Even as we just look around in the gathering here, we are joined spiritually to every other Christian met together here and to every other Christian throughout the world. We're joined all of them, in this covenant community. We are the body of Christ. There is no individualism in the church. Yes, we must be saved as individuals. Make no mistake about that. Nobody can be saved on your behalf. Not your parents, not your siblings, not your children. They can't be saved on your behalf. You must be saved as individuals. But that doesn't lead to individualism, that we live our Christian life as separate individual parts of Christ. We're one body. So, for example, Paul writes in verse 26 of this passage, if one part suffers, every part suffers. So if someone stamps on your toe, you feel it and Throughout your body, you react. You don't stand back and think, oh, my toe's sore, but the rest of me's okay. And so it is in the church. If one part suffers, the whole body should feel it and react to it. We are a body, spiritually. It's stated very powerfully in Ephesians 4.25. We are members one of another. And that is a fact of the church's identity. We don't choose to be members of each other or select some Christians to whom we'll be joined and forget about the rest. We are joined to all of the Lord's people. We weren't asked whether we wanted to be or not. When you trusted in Christ, 
You were joined to every other believer. And that then has to be worked out in practice in our Christian living. So the covenant community, that's what the church is. And we're united to Christ and we're united to one another. So let's then work that out in practice as scripture sets it forth for us. And secondly, we want to think of the basic attitude. The basic attitude. The fundamental characteristic of the body of Christ, of the church, the Bible tells us must be love. John 15, 12, the Savior says, Love each other as I have loved you. The pattern of Christ's love to us is to be reproduced in the church. And that key expression uh, there in John fifteen twelve, as I have loved you. you see, Jesus says it's a new commandment. We think what the Old Testament talks about God's people loving each other. What's new? This is what's new. As I have loved you. The love of Christ is the pattern, the example to us, the kind of love he had. Now, his love was redemptive. Now, we don't reproduce that. We don't save one another. But his love was self-sacrificing for the benefit of others. And yes, that's the love as Christians we are to have. And so in verse 13 of John 15, Jesus goes on to say, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. It's a self-sacrificing and often a costly love that is to characterize the church. It's not primarily a matter of our feelings. Now, we live in a a society that, that defines love as feelings. But the Bible doesn't. Yes, feelings are involved. Our emotions are involved. A love that has no emotional content would be a very strange love. But it's not primarily our feelings. Feelings come, feelings go. Feelings sometimes can be all over the place. But Christian love is not primarily how we feel. It's not a matter either of of trying to like everybody. You know, there are people like that. They try to like everybody and be liked. And often there's an artificiality in that and a, a good deal of pretense. We're not pretending we like every other Christian. Some of them are hard to like, and maybe some days we're a bit hard to like. That's not the love that Jesus is talking about, nor is it a love that just overlooks sin and disobedience to the Lord. So what is it? That's what it's not, but what is Christian love? Well, surely if we are following the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christian love is a deep seated desire to seek the best for our fellow believers. Deep-seated desire to seek the best for our fellow believers. We love them. That's what we want for them. The best will help them to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. It will help them uh, to serve the Lord more faithfully. They're part of us. 
And we want to do whatever is for their spiritual benefit. That's the heart of Christian love. We want what is best. We want what will make them most like the Lord Jesus Christ. What will help them to serve the Savior. That's what Christ has done for us. And that is what we are to do for one another. Other Christians are part of us. And we want what's best for them. We trust they want what is best for us. What is most of spiritual benefit. The Apostle Paul was a tremendous example of that. Of course, he was the great pastor in the New Testament, a real pastor's heart. And he tells us in Galatians 5 that that he was in pain, and he describes it as like the pain of childbirth. Until Christ is formed in you. Galatians 5.19. Is that vivid? Until Christ is formed in you. And isn't that what we long for our fellow Christians as a pastor That's what I long for you, that Christ will be formed in you more and more clearly. Because ultimately, that is the only thing that matters for the Christian. That we become more like Christ and serve him more faithfully. And that is what Christian love seeks. Of course, this is not something we can work up in ourselves. We can't simply try very, very hard to make ourselves love others. It is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It's an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. Remember the list Paul gives us, the fruit of the Spirit is, and the first one is love. And so real Christian love is the fruit of the Spirit. It's something that God will work in your heart and produce in you as you give yourself to the study of Scripture, to prayer, to worship, to things we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And you'll find love for your fellow Christians growing within you. And it is the mark of disciples. It's a proof to the world that we are Christ's disciples, he tells us in John 13 and 35 the work of the Spirit in the heart of a Christian, that we love one another as Christ loved us. Do you find that in your heart for other Christians? What's your focus? Is it spotting their feelings? Is it noticing what they're getting wrong? Or is it a longing that they become more like Christ and serve him more faithfully? That's the basic attitude that should be seen in the church of Jesus Christ. That's what the communion of the saints is built on, loving one another. If we don't love one another as Christ loved us, we can forget about communing with the saints. Those bonds of love between us will be very, very weak if they're there at all. And the root of the problem often, of course, is our bond with Christ isn't being cultivated the way it should. The basic attitude, the covenant community, the basic attitude, and finally, the mutual ministry. The mutual ministry. 
Love is meaningless unless it's made visible in action. Someone says, oh, I love that person, and they never actually do anything that shows that love. Well, you start to wonder, won't you? There's a big question mark over a claim to love if there's no action that shows it. So how could we possibly have a credible claim to love the Lord's people if there is no action to show it, if there's no evidence? The communion of the saints, the fellowship of the saints, if you like, means giving and receiving loving ministry within the church for the Lord's sake. And notice I said giving and receiving. There are some Christians who are quite happy giving, but they struggle with receiving. You see, if I give to you, I can think, well, I'm strong, you're weak, I'm helping you. But if you turn that around and somebody helps me, then it appears that person is strong and I am weak and I don't like that. And there are some Christians are very hard to help because they won't humble themselves to receive from anybody. They want, as it were, to think I'm all right. I'll help others. I'm strong. I'll give But don't try and give me anything or suggest I need to be ministered to. So it's giving and receiving loving ministry within the church. Christ bought these people with his blood. And so our welfare is precious to him. And so the welfare of our fellow believers must be precious to us. Listen to Hebrews 10 and verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Striking. Let's consider, it says. It needs thoughtful consideration. Prayerful consideration. It won't just happen without thinking about it. Thoughtful, prayerful consideration of the needs of others and a willingness to be considered by others who long for our spiritual welfare. It's not something that happens automatically. And some churches can be very cold places where it seems all that anybody considers is their own welfare or their own little circle. And everybody else really doesn't matter very much. Sometimes the world's criticisms of the church have some basis in reality, sadly. Consider one another. Think of the needs of others. Pray that you'll discern the needs of others, to see opportunities where you can minister to them, where you can help them, where you can be a blessing to them. Uh, And this is something for all Christians. There can be the temptation to say, ah, well, that's what we pay the minister for. That's what the elders are for. Let them do it. 
but the commands of Scripture are for all of the Lord's people. We're all to be considering one another with a view to loving ministry. And I'll employ whatever your particular personality and gifts happen to be. There is an endless range of ministry that we can all be undertaking. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Encourage one another and build each other up. Warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Those are just a few examples Paul gives us. And you don't need three years of theological education to do those things, to encourage others. To encourage the timid, help the weak. This isn't just for professional pastors, ministers. It's for all of the Lord's people. I've been blessed over the years with encouragers, particular individuals, who partly in personality, but largely through the grace of God, were encouragers. You can be an encourager to other Christians. You do that. Are people encouraged as they relate to you, as they meet you and talk to you and spend time with you? And so for all the other things that Paul mentions. And it's not just the spiritual. We can sometimes over-spiritualize these things and the the communion of the saints. There's a place uh, also for considering material needs. 1 John 3, 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need and has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? This is very down-to-earth, earthy even, and practical. The communion of the saints includes the body as well as the soul. We're living in a world that is often a cold, hard place as far as those in need are concerned. And that includes different kinds of need. And even in difficult times, yes, there are those who respond uh, with care and compassion, but for many others, there's the tendency to play it safe, circle the wagons, look after yourself and your own little circle. The church is to model a different lifestyle. It's to model the love of Christ. And that begins with fellow believers and then spills out into the wider world. And so the communion of the saints should be a great source of blessing to the Lord's people. And it should be a witness to the world as well, a world where little of this is in evidence. That's a challenge to every professing Christian. If you claim to know and love the Lord, do you commune with the saints? Do you love them? Are you a means of blessing to them? Do you receive blessing from them? Have you a sense truly of being part of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ? There's another aspect of our spiritual checkup. Do you commune 
with the saints. Not living your Christian life as a, an individual, separate from others. Thinking you're self-sufficient. But as part of the community, the covenant community of the Lord's people. United to Christ. United to one another. Loving one another as Christ loved us.